0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now. Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. climate summit in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. This is Democracy
1: Now! The people of Gaza are in the midst of an epic humanitarian catastrophe before the eyes of the world. We must not look away.
0: The UN Secretary General has invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter for the first time in decades to press the Security Council. To support a ceasefire in Gaza, warning public order is completely breaking down as Gaza's humanitarian system collapses from the Israeli assault. We'll speak to the award-winning Palestinian poet Masab Abu Toha, who was recently jailed and beaten by Israeli forces. He's joining us in his first interview since leaving Gaza. Then... This is a cabal of oil producers, not a climate summit. That's what climate scientist Kevin Anderson says about COP28 here in Dubai.
1: I refer to the COP as a cabal of oil producers. And I've used that expression because year after year at these international negotiations, the most powerful voice is not that from the US, from the EU, from China, or any other country. It is actually from the oil producing companies
0: We'll speak with the Nigerian climate activist Nima Bassi here at the U.N. Climate Summit as well.
2: It is a breaking point for the African continent. It's a moment when real climate action should be taken and not carbon trading.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli tanks have advanced into the center of the city of Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip as Israel's assault in the besieged Palestinian territory enters its third month. On Wednesday, an Israeli strike on the Jabalia refugee camp killed 22 members of the family of Moman al-Sharafi, a correspondent for Al Jazeera Arabic, including his parents and his siblings. Palestinians in parts of southern Gaza that Israel's claimed are safe continue to come under fire. This is Amir Magnum, a five-year-old boy injured Wednesday when an Israeli strike hit a school in eastern Khan Yunis, where his family was sheltering. I went into the classroom and went to play with my friend.
3: Then suddenly I heard a sound going boom and ran. A rock fell on me, on my legs, and then I ran away. Who got injured? Father, a big rock fell on Father, hit him here on the leg. A
0: big rock fell on me, here on my leg. Gaza's health ministry says Israeli attacks have killed more than 16,200 people, more than 7,100 of them children. In a new report, the World Food Program finds at least 97% of households in northern Gaza have inadequate supplies of food to meet their needs. A third of residents of southern Gaza reported high levels of severe or very severe hunger. Meanwhile, in Lebanon, a Reuters investigation has revealed an Israeli tank crew killed one of the Reuters journalists and wounded six other reporters on October 13th by firing two shells in quick succession from Israel while the journalists were live streaming cross-border shelling. The attack killed Reuters videographer, Assam Abdullah, and injured six others, including Agence France press reporter Christina Assi. Reuters has condemned the killing and is demanding Israel explain its actions. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter in a bid to force a debate at the Security Council on a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Guterres spokesperson Stefan Duchark announced the move Wednesday.
1: Secretary General urges the members of the Security Council to press to avert a humanitarian catastrophe, and he appeals for a humanitarian ceasefire to be declared.
0: It's the first time Guterres has invoked Article 99 since he became U.N. Secretary General seven years ago, just the fourth time in U.N. history. In New York City, medical workers with the French charity Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, held a candlelight vigil outside the United Nations headquarters Wednesday calling for a ceasefire in Gaza as they honored colleagues who've been killed by Israel's assault on hospitals and clinics. Four MSF staff members are among the hundreds of medical workers that have been killed in Israel's attacks since October. This is Dr. Africa Stewart, an obstetrician and chair of MSF's Board of Directors.
2: We speak out now because you cannot deliver humanitarian aid while you fear for your own life. I'm here for the mommies. I'm here to remind us
4: how hard it is to
2: run full speed when you're pregnant. How debilitating it is to decide if you're going to hold your toddler's hand or a parent's hand as you flee. Our colleagues are being killed at the bedside of our patients. This must stop. We need basic perinatal care, which includes water and food and electricity.
0: In the United States, senators blocked a procedural vote Wednesday on a $111 billion emergency supplemental bill to provide military aid to Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel. Every Republican voted against the package after party leaders argued the bill didn't go far enough toward further militarizing the U.S.-Mexico border. Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders also voted no. At the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, a gunman killed three people and wounded a fourth on Wednesday before he was fatally shot by police. The suspect has not been named, but is reportedly a 67-year-old career professor with connections to colleges in Georgia and North Carolina. Las Vegas is the site of the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history after a gunman killed 60 people at a 2017 music festival. Former Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Wednesday he's resigning from Congress at the end of the year. McCarthy's planned departure comes two months after he became the first House Speaker in U.S. history to be removed by members of their own party. Under California law, a special election must be held in about four months time to decide who will represent McCarthy's district in California's Central Valley. His departure further shrinks Republican slim majority in the House after lawmakers voted last week to expel New York Congress member and serial fabulist, that's liar, George Santos. In Alabama, just four candidates took part in the fourth Republican presidential primary debate Wednesday evening. Donald Trump again skipped the debate, holding a fundraiser instead. Host Megyn Kelly set the stage for an unabated attack on transgender youth. Here she questions former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who opposes trans health care bans, citing parental rights. Surgeries done on minors involve cutting off body parts at a time when these kids cannot even legally smoke a cigarette. Kids who go from puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones are at a much greater likelihood of winding up sterile. How is it that you think a parent should be able to okay these surgeries, never mind the sterilization of a child? And aren't you way too out of step on this issue to be the Republican nominee?
3: No, I'm not. Because, because Republicans believe in less government, not more. In less involvement with government, not more in government involvement in people's Other lives.
0: candidates took host Megyn Kelly's bait to attack trans rights and cite medical falsehoods. with businessman Vivek Ramaswamy calling transgenderism a mental health disorder. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had this exchange with former Trump U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. If you're somebody that's going to be the president of the United States and you can't stand up against child abuse, how are you going to be able to stand I never up for said anything?
2: That, that I, is the truth. I we, never have it, said we have that. it on video.
0: I said that. I said that if you have to be 18 to get a tattoo, you should have to be 18 to have anything done to change. He said your the gender. law should stay out of it. Meanwhile, frontrunner Donald Trump appeared in a Fox News town hall Tuesday night where he told host Sean Hannity he would not be a dictator if he becomes president again, quote, other than day one. He also told Hannity his priorities would be to close the border and drill, drill, drill. In related news, Georgia prosecutors have put former Vice President Mike Pence on their possible witness list in their sweeping 2020 election interference case. In Peru, former President Alberto Fujimori walked free from prison Wednesday after the Constitutional Court ordered his release on humanitarian grounds. The 85-year-old Fujimori had been serving a 25-year sentence since 2009 for the murder of 25 Peruvians during his rule in the 1990s. This is Giselle Ortiz, former culture minister of Peru and the sister of one of the victims of the 1992 Cantuta massacre in which death squad members disappeared and murdered a university professor and nine students.
5: As relatives massacre victims, we demand for the law to be respected. Law is equal for everyone, even if your last name is Fujimori. The processes and paperwork must be followed. If he is entitled to a pardon, this will be proven, but we don't want
0: for our right to justice to be mocked, for years of hard work from relatives to be stomped on because everything is part of a political arrangement. The legendary television producer and longtime political activist Norman Lear has died at the age of 101. In the 1970s, Norman Lear helped revolutionize TV sitcoms with a string of hit shows, including All in the Family, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, Good Times, and Maud. Lear's social and political activism earned him a place on Richard Nixon's enemies list and the scorn of the Christian right. In response, he founded People for the American Way, a progressive advocacy group in 1980. This is Norman Lear speaking in a 2016 interview with Democracy Now!
1: I think it was H.L. Mencken who once said nobody ever lost money underestimating the intelligence of the American people. Uh, To some degree, the establishment lives with that and makes its decisions on behalf of the American people
3: with that in mind. I disagree. I think, uh, you know, we,
1: we are provably not the best educated, but we're wise of heart. And we understand a lot more than we're given credit for.
0: And today is Noam Chomsky's 95th birthday. To see our interviews with the world-renowned scholar, linguist, and activist on Democracy Now! about Israel, Palestine, the climate crisis, and so much more, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report.
5: I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Narmin Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has invoked Article 99 of the UN Charter for the first time in decades to press the Security Council to support a ceasefire in Gaza as Israel intensifies its assault, which began two months ago today on October 7th after Hamas attacked Israel. In a letter, Guterres wrote, quote, amid constant bombardment by the Israel defense forces and without shelter or the essentials to survive, I expect public order to completely break down soon due to the desperate conditions, he wrote. He went on to write, quote, we're facing a severe risk of collapse of the humanitarian system. The situation is fast deteriorating into a catastrophe with potentially irreversible implications for Palestinians as a whole and for peace and security in the region. Such an an outcome must be avoided at all cost. We begin today's show with the celebrated Palestinian poet Mossab Abu Toha, who was recently jailed and beaten by Israeli forces. He was detained at a checkpoint in Gaza as he was headed toward Rafah with his family. He was rounded up with scores of other Palestinians. After he was released from an Israeli jail two days later, Abu Toha posted a message on social media writing, quote, I am safe but still have pain in nose and teeth after." being beaten by Israeli army. I gave them all my family's passports, including my American sons, but they didn't return anything. Also, my clothes and my children's were taken and not returned to me. No wallet, money, credit cards, he wrote.
0: Masab Toha's detention sparked global outcry from the literary community and beyond. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, the Progressive, and other publications. He founded the Edward Said Library in Gaza. His first book of poetry, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, won the American Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. The poetry collection was published by City Lights Books. On Sunday, Masab Toha managed to leave Gaza with his wife and three children through the Rafah border. He joins us now from Cairo, Egypt, for his first interview since he was jailed. Welcome to Democracy Now! Mossab. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm sorry for all you have gone through. Can you describe what happened? Where you were detained? Where you were jailed? What happened to you when you were in Israeli prison?
4: Thank you so much for having me. I I made it uh, from the north of Gaza uh, to the south of Gaza, but I was jailed by the Israeli army. I was trying to cross and reach the Rafah border crossing. Our names were listed uh, by the American, by the by the Department of State, uh, because my my youngest son, three years and a half, uh, was born in America. He's an American citizen. So I was trying to cross from the north of Gaza, where I spent the past uh, two months, I would say, um, to the south of Gaza, where Rafah is, and where and, and where we uh, were advised to go. But at the checkpoint, I was picked by the Israeli army, uh, along with about 200 other people. I was picked by the Israeli soldier. He called me by describing me. He said the the man with the black backpack and the red-haired boy, put the, the boy down and let him go and come to me. So I I, mean, I, was try- I took our passports, my sons and also my wife's and two other children, uh, thinking that I would show the passports and, uh, and also my American son to them so they, they would just let us go. But I was surprised because he ordered me very aggressively to put the sun down and come to, to join the, the queue of other people who were kidnapped with me. I mean, there was a, young, a, a, young, a, a younger man. He was so scared, and he said, I wanted my mother. I want to be with my mom. Oh, my mom, come help me, etc." I tried to calm him down, telling him, oh, don't worry. We, maybe they are going to ask us some question, and then we would go. But that was not the case. I was then summoned by another Israeli soldier uh, who was sitting next to another soldier who was pointing his gun at us. They asked us to recite our names and uh, our ID numbers. And then I was led to another uh, Israeli jeep. And in, in front of whom, I mean, there, was, there were three Israeli soldiers, I, 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 had, I was forced to take off all my clothes. I just took off my pants and my shirt, etc. and I kept my boxer shorts on. But I was surprised when they asked me to just also take off my boxer shorts. So I was naked. Um, I felt humiliated, I felt uh, terrified and terrorized by this army because they were ordering us to do everything at gunpoint. And then I was beaten in my face, I was beaten in my stomach, and I still have pain in my face. Uh, and later I realized they were taking us to, to Beersaba or Beersheba, about two hours away from Gaza, without knowing what they were going to do to us. Um, I had. Uh, little clothes to warm my body during the cold uh, weather. Um, so I then they took me for interrogation, and I did tell them all my story. And I wasn't aware that the whole world, especially in America, were just writing about me and asking for my release. Uh, I think this, this was one reason. I mean, I didn't do anything in my life. Uh, I didn't harm any person, although I, live, I lived under occupation all my life. And I was wounded when I was 16. I got a piece of shrapnel just a few centimeters away from my windpipe. So I was harmed. My house was bombed. But I, myself, didn't harm anyone. But I was harmed again. And I'm still harmed by the fact that my family and my neighbors are still in Gaza. And the last time I was in touch with my mother and my sisters, and also my brothers and their children, was five days ago. The, the, the same day I left Gaza. So I've, I have no single piece of news whether they are alive or dead.
5: Uh, so Masab, I, I'd like to ask you, I mean, of course, you you mentioned very soon after you arrived... Uh, in Egypt that uh, you remain very, very concerned because your parents and your siblings are in Gaza. Uh, You've not been able to reach them for five days. Are you able to reach others uh, in Gaza? I'd just like to read very briefly what a uh, leading military analyst from the U.S. has said, uh, drawing an analogy between the Second World War's bombardment of German cities like Dresden and Cologne and the contemporary present bombardment uh, of uh, Gaza by Israel, Uh, Robert, this is Robert Pape writing, Dresden, Hamburg, Cologne, some of the world's heaviest ever bombings are remembered by their place names. Gaza will also go down as a place name, denoting one of history's heaviest conventional bombing campaigns. So, Musab, if you could talk about that and what you know now uh, about what's going on in Gaza. As since you left?
4: Well, I mean, the situation, I think, is different uh, than the, the other place names that you mentioned. For your information and your respected audience, <clears throat> I have, still have friends who are, whose houses were bombed uh, a few weeks ago and whose bodies are still not retrieved. And I wrote in one of my posts that not only are Gazans, are we in Gazans concerned about being killed under the rubble of our house, but also of being maybe of being alive under the rubble and no one coming to rescue us. So there are no fire trucks, there are no civil defence staff, there is no fuel, there are no equipment, there is no equipment to retrieve the bodies of those who might be still alive under the bombing of their houses, after the bombing of their houses. So I don't think Gaza could be compared to any other place on Earth. And now with social media and all the world watching us, I mean, it's different from maybe Second World War. I mean, people would hear the news of the bombing of a house or something maybe later. But people are just watching us live. And no one can step in to stop their carnage, the genocide that is committed against my family, my neighbors, my friends, my students, my fellow writers. And artists. So, during the truce, uh, a few weeks ago, I think two weeks ago, there was the truce. My, I, I was in Derrabala, in the other, in the second, uh, in the other half of the Gaza trip, while my brother Hamza, who is the father of three children and whose wife is pregnant and is about to give birth, so that's another issue that no one talks about. I mean, the the, the reality and the circumstances with which uh, women in Gaza are living. I mean, they are talking about sexual violence against Israeli women, uh, but no one, no one, no one talks about the the, the violence against our lives. No one talks about uh, women, pregnant women. No one talks about women themselves buried in, under the rubble with their families. So this is not called violence. So you are, you just care about sexual violence. That's all you you care about. how this world is really thinking. And Masab, so could you talk about that? Could you, to that? Could you say... You need to... uh,
5: Masab, I was saying, yes. if you could elaborate on that, what Hello? the situation of Palestinian women, in particular, as you pointed out, Palestinian women who are pregnant, uh, given what the situation in hospitals is, uh, you've said a little bit about this in the past. If you could elaborate... Mm-hmm.
4: Well, I mean, you know, women, 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 just in, like other women in the world. I mean, women in Gaza have their own needs. I mean, there are no clean bathrooms. There are no cl- clean toilets, and they need they need their own things. You know, when, when a woman gets the period, I mean, there are no, you know, uh, there are no stuff for them to take care of their bodies. And there are, there are also the other pregnant women. So many hospitals in Gaza uh, are out of service right now, not only for, for the wounded, but also for the pregnant women. No one talks about this. You, you need to talk about this. Where can my sister-in-law, my, 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 my brother's wife, where can she give birth? And is there enough clothes for the, the newborn baby? So you don't care about this violence committed against parents? How they are, ma- are going to manage their lives? No one talks about this. This is violence in itself, not only killing us, but about. so it's also about the lack of water, the lack of food. You know, 20, so before the, the start of this uh, uh, carnage, we used to buy 25 kilos of wheat flour for, uh, for, for 40 shekels which is uh, which is about uh, 12 dollars yesterday my wife's uncle messaged me and he said i paid 500 shekels which is about 130 dollars so he he paid he paid 130 dollars to get 25 kilograms of flour wheat wheat flour but and if you could find it of course because there is lack uh, in respect to, to to wheat flour and other uh, other basic things, but, so if he, if he if he had the money to buy it, there are other people who had not been able to get any money because they are jobless. Most people in Gaza depend on daily jobs, farmers, uh, sh- sellers, etc. So there are the majority of people in Gaza don't have money, so they are sometimes begging other people to give them money. So no one talks about this. They are just talking about sexual violence, about about October 7th. But this has been going on even Um, before October 7th, by the way.
0: We are reporting on everything, Uh, the horrific um, stories we're hearing from October 7th, but also what happened before October 7th to Palestinians and after. And I wanted to get your response to the World Health Organization calling the assault on Gaza humanity's darkest hour. The U.N.'s top humanitarian relief coordinator said Israel's attack in southern Gaza has been as devastating as in the north, with the apocalyptic conditions preventing the delivery of aid, some 85 percent of the population now displaced. And particularly, if you could talk about your conversations with doctors and nurses in Gaza, you tweeted, um, just imagine yourself as a father watching your child not only having his her leg amputated, but also dying of pain. Do you still feel you're a father? That there are still humans in the world? Talk about the hospitals.
4: Mm-hmm. So, the first hospital I was able to enter was uh, Shuhada Al Aqsa Hospital, which is in Deir al Balah. And I went there, f- I mean, I don't like to go to hospitals because, first of all, there is no space for me uh, to enter. I mean, uh, full, beds are full of patients and wounded people, and, and at the same time, the, the corridors. The, the inner hallways are just full of people lying there. I mean, wounded people are getting uh, treated, getting uh, surgeries while on the floor. So, But I had to go to the hospital in Darbalah to get some treatment for my face and my bleeding nose. Uh, so there are not enough doctors to treat the, the, the patients and the wounded people. Um, and there are just bodies everywhere. People even, I mean, they would just go and bury people without their relatives around. Because their relatives have died with them, which is really, really heartbreaking. Um, people are, are, are turned into numbers and names. They would just put a body in a, in a piece of cloth and just write their names, and that's it. They would just take them to the, to the cemetery. Um, So I was able to talk to some doctors and nurses at the hospital, and I was shocked. I mean, I knew that there were not enough medications. But I was told by one nurse about the case of a child who had her leg amputated. And because there was no anesthesia, no painkillers, the child died while she was having her leg amputated. And I'm wondering, I mean, uh, how, how would I feel as a father if my child had to have her leg or arm amputated while she is watching her arm or, or leg amputated? And then she would continue to bleed, and then she would die because of the pain. And I'm asking all the people in the world just to put the, them, themselves in, in my place as a father. And I'm asking them, are you really ready? In the future, when a, when a Gazan child meets you, in, uh, uh, maybe in, in the street, or when you come visit Gaza, or visit the cemeteries in Gaza, what, what would you say to this child? What have you done to, to protect his family? So you, uh, you, you are living in the Western some world. finally. And you are, in some way or another, supporting Israel. Yes. No, please go ahead, finish. I mean, I mean, you are, in some way or another, you are supporting Israel. Not, I mean, you, know, you are paying taxes, which is going to... Is- I mean, most of the taxes are going to Israel. And I'm really shocked by the American administration, I, and I hope that my voice would reach the American administration people. So you, when, when, when October 7th happened... You went, to, you went to Israel, you showed your support, you offered weapons, and you offered money, so you, you were able to do everything. But, but now you are asking Israel to protect, to minimize the casualties uh, of the civili- among the civilians. Can you do anything to protect the civilians? So you are calling Israel to, to minimize the casualties. OK. So what, what can you do as an American administration to, to, to force Israel to abide by the law? Is it is it really hard for for you to stop the carnage, to protect the civilian people, to protect hospitals, to protect shelters, honor schools.
5: So finally, Mossab, what is your message uh, uh, to the U.S., to President Biden, and to European leaders?
4: Well. I think if you can't stop the war, if you can't stop the carnage, the genocide, just stop stop financing it. Stop providing more weapons to Israel. Because these weapons are just killing children who are just like your other children. I mean, your children and you as as an American or a, a, a European parent, you could be born here in my place in Gaza, your child could be living in an honourable school, in a shelter. They could be bombed in, 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 in a classroom. And instead of studying and you know, continuing education, your child could be just sheltering in a classroom with no teacher, with no, with no books. They are just being educated how, how to survive, if they could.
0: Massab, we just have 30 seconds, but were you ever told why you were jailed? You were jailed, I think, that day, about 200 Palestinians in Gaza were jailed. There was a great outcry for you. Do you know if the others were released?
4: No. I mean, there are a few other people uh, I knew by name, because they are from the same town as me, from Bethlehem, and now it's— so I was, I was kidnapped on November 19th, and now today it's uh, December 7th. Until now, there are other people who are still uh, detained by the Israeli army, and their families are just contacting me. Did you, do you know anything about. I told them, I just left, I was just released, I, I don't have any news about your family. So they are still kidnapped. And the Israelis, by the way, accused me of being a Hamas member. <laughs> You know, I mean, what a ridiculous accusation. I've been living in America for the past four years. Um, and I've been, I've, been, I've been hurt, you know, without I, I asked them, I asked the Israeli so, uh, captain, if they have any photo, photograph, if they have any satellite photo of me holding a weapon or being in, a, in any place that could cause any harm to you. And he slapped me in the face. He said, "You give me the proof."
0: <laughs> Abu Toha. we want to thank you so much for being with us. Palestinian poet and author, jailed by Israeli authorities as he and his family fled Gaza. His son is an American citizen. He's a columnist, a teacher, and founder of the Edward Said Library in Gaza, also author of the American Book Award-winning book of poetry, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear. Poems from Gaza. This is Democracy Now! We're broadcasting from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates at COP28. Our next guest calls this a cabal of oil producers, not a climate summit. We'll speak with the renowned climate scientist Kevin Anderson and find out why he's not here. Stay with us.
3: Tifauch, nabbed the aroth, tifauch, ريحه, Iطر, shark, the fواح, mendued, I ain't I'm going
0: Palestinian singer-songwriter Yusuf Hamed featuring Nais Daw. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org,
5: the war and peace report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen sheik We're broadcasting from COP28, the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. Today is a day of rest as the two-week conference reaches its halfway point and negotiations begin nearly 200 countries begin to take shape. This is U.N. Climate Chief Simon Steele.
2: We can only overcome the climate crisis by ditching business as usual. The win on loss and damage here in Dubai gave this cop a spring in its step, but it is just the start. Now all governments must give their negotiators clear marching orders. We need highest ambition, not point scoring or lowest common denominator politics.
5: This comes amid ongoing furor over the COP28 president and UAE oil company CEO's claim that there's no science indicating that a phase out of fossil fuels is needed to address the climate crisis. Sultan Al Jaber made the comment during an interview with Mary Robinson, former UN special envoy for climate change and former president of Ireland. Robinson has since posted on X, formerly Twitter, quote, "A successful COP28 is not about a single individual or nation, but" The collective will and concerned efforts of all countries in these negotiations. The science compels, phase out fossil fuels rapidly, accelerate renewable energy adoption and radically scale up finance, she wrote. A new report by the Global Carbon Project shows carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels are set to hit a record high this year. According to Oxfam, the richest 1% generated as much planet-warming pollution as the poorest two-thirds of humanity, with private jet travel a key source of emissions. For more,
0: we're joined by Kevin Anderson, a leading climate scientist, professor of energy and climate change at the University of Manchester and the University of Uppsala in Sweden. He's a former director of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research, recently wrote on social media, quote... This is a cabal of oil producers, not a climate cop. The outcome is known. Crafted rhetoric and lacquered sincerity. Grand announcement with no teeth. Well, I don't know if I have to ask you then, uh, Professor Anderson, why you're not here. But talk about um, your own lifestyle and the decisions you have made to cut down on your carbon footprint and then what is happening here and what should be happening here?
1: OK, sometimes I'm quite reluctant to talk about my own lifestyle. But, yeah, I've tried to make some changes as a as a climate academic. So I stopped flying in 2004. I live in a very nice flat, but it's a two bedroom flat or apartment. I've cut my driving by about 70 percent. I've been vegetarian since 1987. So I've made some changes. But let's be clear, those changes are In isolation, those changes are irrelevant. The only merit of individuals making changes is that when we speak to others, we can talk from a position of some understanding of how difficult that is or how easy that is. We know from, from repeated psychological evidence that that improves or increases the credibility of our arguments. So by making the changes ourselves, that allows us much more scope and potential for changing the system. And that's the important that two sides of the same coin. System change also requires personal change. They are the same thing. And separating the two, as some people do, I think is usually deliberate by those people who are high emitters. So us high emitters have to significantly change our norms if we are going to be heard and listened to um, when we talk about system level change. So that's why I've made these changes. I'm not at the COP. Well, for two reasons. One, it's very difficult for me to get there from either from Sweden or the UK without without taking a very long time, um, certainly because uh, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be flying. But I'm also increasingly disillusioned as to what merit the cops have. And I say that with a, with, a, with an awareness that many people in the poorer parts of the world say it is important for them because they get their voices heard. And I think that is really true. And Salem Hook, the late Salem Hook, is very sadly you know, no longer with us so can't attend this year. He has made that point and I've listened to him on many occasions. But I actually think now that We have heard the voices of poorer communities at the COPs, but we have not listened to them. At some point, hearing is not enough. We have to listen and we have to act. And I think, you know, it's 1992 was the the first big Rio Earth Summit. 1990 was the first IPCC report a third of a century ago. Our emissions, as you've just heard from the Global Carbon Project, our emissions are still going up. This, year co- this year's COP is overseen by a chair of an oil company. At every single level, these processes have been deeply co-opted, and I don't just mean necessarily by, by you know by the oil players themselves, but they have changed the narrative of the media, they've changed the funding for research, so they, they, they um, provide the advertising for for the for media for um, arts and for sport. At every single level, the the tendrils of big oil. Are changing our society and fundamentally changing our climate, and these COPs have become little more than a scam, under which um, you know, the the oil companies and the other fossil fuel companies are are hiding that nothing is being done, and so I'm I, I'm almost in a bit of a state of well, I won't say despair but disillusionment as to where's the right way forward. I think some of the changes in civil society are really important, but I'm I'm very sceptical of these these grand events now doing anything other than, you know, providing two weeks for the media to talk about climate change, then forget about it for the other 50 weeks of the year.
5: Well, Kevin Anderson, we'll ask uh, you about what, where you think the possibility of any kind of change uh, can happen. But if you could speak specifically about the top 1 percent, uh, and this is not just, of course, in, in the U.S. or Europe, although principally there, the top 1 percent of uh, the rich around the world and uh, the uh, percentage of uh, pollution and consumption that they are responsible for uh, relative to the rest of the world's population population.
1: Mm. I think that top 1% is really important. I mean, the numbers tell us that anyway. We know that that from the emissions point of view, emissions of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas point of view, that top 1% have a combined carbon footprint that's approximately twice as big as the bottom of the half, bottom half of the world's population. I still find it shocking when I say that, that 1% have a carbon footprint that's twice as big as the bottom half of the world's population. That in itself is appalling, and I would say obscene. Remember, it's not just emissions. That will almost certainly hold for consumption of material goods and other forms of environmental sort of detrimental um, uh, behaviours and so forth. But that 1% also own the newspapers, most of them. They um, are the senior people in our policymakers, in our companies. They are the senior academics. They're the vice chancellors of our universities. So, That, and I I use the word almost pejoratively, I suppose, that elite group framed the whole climate change and broader ecological debate. And they have framed it in a way that has supported them, supported us. We are unprepared to ask the questions that would, would be difficult for us to think about in relation to our own norms and lifestyles. So we have deliberately twisted everything in society to fit with that particular worldview, that particular paradigm, which the physics doesn't give a damn about. The temperature will just keep going up. We can scam everything as much as we want. As the Global Carbon Project pointed out, the emissions will go up again this year. And we can have all these fine speeches and all these other things out there but the temperature will keep rising, people will start to get seriously damaged or um, uh, impacted in the global north as they are already in the global south. Let's be very clear about this. Climate change is not a threat for many. It's a daily reality. People are dying. Communities are being fractured. Their livelihoods are being lost as a consequence of the emissions that we in the global north, particularly that 1%, have knowingly imposed upon them and are carrying on doing so. And that's why the scam and the language around the COP um, 28 to me is deeply disturbing when we consider what is actually happening and what we are locking in, even for our own children's future. Do we have so little concern for our own children's future that we are prepared to scam these cops, scam the whole climate change agenda just to maintain our comfortable, overly comfortable way of living? This top one percent of which will include, as I say, John- uh, uh, most of the so-called elites in our society.
0: Dr. Anderson, we just have 30 seconds, but you have said there are now no non-radical futures. The choices between immediate and profound social change or waiting a little longer for chaotic and violent social change. In 2023, the window for this choice is rapidly closing. Your final comments.
1: We have to recognize that responding to climate change needs a sort of Marshall style plan in terms of technology. So rapid rollout of technology, low carbon technologies that exist today. But that in itself now is too late. Alongside that, we have to have fairness and equity in there. The maths of the Paris Agreement and the IPCC science tell us that equity, fairness is a prerequisite of delivering on our Paris commitments. So technology and fairness have to go hand in hand.
0: Kevin Anderson, leading climate scientist, speaking to us from Uppsala, Sweden, where he is a professor of energy and climate change, as well as at the University of Manchester, former director of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research. We'll link to your articles. Coming up, Nigerian climate activist Nemo Bassi here at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai. Back in 30 seconds.
3: red, but you're high and I'm crying. You're trying to forget, but it hits me every time. You pray next to me, the right hand holds your left sleeve. Turning our heads gently, cause when it ends, we fight. And in that warm winter, I withered, I just wanna get better. I'll be what you like. makes me want to cry Whose Lord are you naming When you start to break things It's my only life you owe know. And when you left me waiting I thought, did you do it in the name
0: of God? Name of God by Mustafa. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen sheik We're broadcasting from COP28, the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai, United Arab Emirates, where there is a day of rest today. So we're among the only ones, along with the workers in this vast facility in Dubai and the expo uh, that are here.
5: This week, protesters from Africa gathered at the entrance of COP28 with the call to make the polluters pay. This is Ina Maria, a frontline climate activist from Namibia. And But first, Bekumi Dean Bebe with PowerShift South Africa.
3: United will never
4: be people
3: united will never be defeated. The people united will never be defeated. I said the people united will never be defeated. The people united will never be defeated. I've turned
4: this entire going to a crime scene, which is why we see this. The injustices are undeniable. They are as
2: undeniable as what has been said about the climate science. It's clear
3: and we're witness here. We feel the impact more than anyone across the world. The droughts are clear. The famine is clear. The flooding
4: is clear across Africa. The 600 million people without energy access is clear. The 900 million people in Africa without cooking cooking uh, alternatives is clear. We want justice now. And we refuse energy colonialism.
1: We want climate justice now. When you walk out of this area, just think, just think for yourself. Is this just that
3: your banks, your uh, 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 financial institutions continue to subsidize these climate criminals because that is what they are? Tomorrow, when you find your house underwater, just think. Who were the institutions
1: supporting? Were the institutions, the people that are being criminalized, like our late cancer we, were, we are your ancestors. We are you. And we are telling you right now make
3: polluters pay. No. Make polluters pay. No. Make polluters pay. No. Make pay. No.
0: Climate activists from Namibia and South Africa, but now we head north. Um, that last reference to Ken Sarawiwa, a remarkable climate activist in Nigeria, leading writer who was killed by the state of Nigeria. Um, We're joined now by Nemo Bassi, a man who knew him well, a longtime Nigerian environmental activist and poet who is here in Dubai, director of the Health of Mother Earth Foundation. It's great to have you back, Nemo. In one of these climate summits, you were arrested. I can't remember which one. Here there is protest within the bounds of the U.N. uh, summit. It's not allowed outside. We're in the United Arab Emirates. Um, If you can talk about what is happening here and what you think needs to happen.
2: Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the arrest uh, that happened in Copenhagen at COP15. And that was when we were insisting that anything more than one degree Celsius temperature increase was setting Africa on fire. And now we're here celebrating 1.5, which is being missed already. Uh, So the the COP, my thinking was that coming to this COP, uh, the negotiators would take note of the United Nations Environment Program's emissions gap report, which came out just a couple of days before the COP. That report showed that if countries do all they said they're going to do as nationally determined contributions, the world will be set for 2.9 degrees Celsius temperature increase above pre-industrial level. That would mean about four degrees for Africa and for some other regions. But here we're seeing that right from day one, the agenda of the COP appears to be, the COP appears more like a carbon trade fair. Uh, It's like people are making deals rather than talk about how to cut emissions at source. I'm I'm not really very disappointed about this because I didn't expect it to be anything different. You have, as we've heard, as we know, an oil company executive leading the COP. The COP is already compromised.
0: It's one of the largest oil corporations, the world, ADNAC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Corporation, Sultan Al-Jaber, who is the uh, head of this COP.
2: Yes, and, uh, you know, we've, we've we've heard so many things going on. And, um, with, with the fossil fuel industry being so prominent here with bankers crawling the spaces of the COP, we're seeing a lot of trade discussions. And, you know, this it breaks my heart when I look at the way African negotiators or policymakers, the politicians are bending back and accepting whatever has been thrown at them by the, so those who are investing in carbon offsetting uh, or carbon trading mechanisms. Uh, we're seeing a, a sellout of African continents. Um, and, and we know the implications for this. For one, it means once you sit out the territory for a period of time, uh, you've lost sovereignty, more so to speak, over that place, over that forest, over that community, over that territory, and then you—it means negatively, negative impact on communities who live in the area that you are sitting. We're talking about millions of hectares being mapped out to be sold for for carbon uh, carbon credits generating facilities, and you know, some of this means. Reforestation or afforestation it means clearing the land and planting new trees. Now that itself emits releases a lot of carbon from the soil, and then of course these new trees are monocultures and they don't they are not as efficient carbon sinks as natural forests. And so we're seeing losses on every in every dimension.
5: So if you could elaborate on that, Nima, what precisely is being discussed here with respect to carbon trading and the purchase of large tracts of land in many parts of Africa, in particular by this Emirati company, Blue Carbon? But it's by no means the only company uh, to be doing this.
2: Right. Um, I think the the COP has continuously been opening up the space for this kind of false climate solutions. And it's all embedded in Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Uh, which allows for false solutions like carbon offsetting, like geoengineering, carbon capture and storage. They're all These are things that allow polluters to keep on polluting without cutting emissions at source. Uh, and, and so we're having corporations like the one you mentioned advancing to many African countries, to Liberia, into Kenya, into everywhere, Zimbabwe and the rest. And they're, they're investing, investing in quotes into large tracts of land. And it's really scary, some of the things we're hearing. We're hearing some countries may steal up to 20% of their landmass. many of them 10%. And, of course, we heard about in Nigerian states that also are signed a memorandum of understanding uh, to sit out about close to 800,000 hectares of land. Uh, it's very disturbing. It's really disturbing. This, this is like green colonialism. We've heard that over and over. This is clear example of, of, of selling of territories for a mess of porridge.
5: And finally, uh, uh, Nemo, if you could talk about you're one of Nigeria's leading environmental activists. You have been for decades. What are the implications of the decisions taken here for Nigeria, the most populous country in, in Africa and also its biggest oil producer?
2: <laughs> you threw in the oil aspect. <laughs> well, N- Nigeria is a very important country on the African continent for size and population, and for this kind of energy conversation. In fact, we always point people, those who want to open up new oil ways to look at Nigeria to understand why they should not go that way, uh, because the energy there's a role of energy expansion in Africa, uh, in Okavango, in. Uganda in the Solom Delta, in Senegal. Everywhere you look, new oil or gas fields are being opened. And they're open for export, not for use of the resources on the continent. And so it's all about money. And without any care about the people, about the environment. And so in the case of Nigeria, this particular way, the Nigerian government right now is very, very excited about carbon trading, about carbon market. They're following the examples of Kenyan government and others, uh, and it's all about um, trying to attract resources, financial resources, without considering the impact on the communities, without considering the impact on the climate. And of course, we have a very peculiar system in uh, position, in place in Nigeria with gas flaring continuing. And in fact, one particular oil well that blew up three and a half years ago is still burning as we speak. We
0: want to thank you so much for being with us. This is a conversation that we will continue. Nemo Bassi, longtime Nigerian environmental activist, poet, director of the Health of Mother Earth Foundation, author of several books, including Oil Politics and To Cook a Continent, Destructive Extraction and Climate Crisis in Africa. In 2010, he received the Right Livelihood Award. That does it for our show. Happy birthday, Noam Chomsky. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheik here in Dubai.